Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. At this time, the children are dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, those of us with kids are having a sigh of relief a little bit right now. And Kendall's just over here smiling it up because he is. He pray for his family, pray for Andy. They got uh, a little cold going on um, in their life. And as I look behind me, we now have windows that are pretty big behind us. It is snowing like crazy. Isn't that nuts? I mean, I was like, Kendall, really Christmas songs already? But I guess I was wrong. Um, yeah. That's actually literally what I told Judah the other day. I was like, he was like, when's Christmas? I said, when, the, when, when there's snow. Because I thought that was going to be off. Well, with that, open in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We are nearing the end of our first book study. We only have two sermons left in the book of Titus. So Titus chapter 3, today we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. And then next week, uh, to spare us all the travel log kind of there at the end, as Paul says, uh, Hello to a bunch of people with long Greek names. I'm going to look at the entire book of Titus. I want to preach through an overview of Titus 1.1 to Titus 3.15. And so um, that'll be an interesting thing. I've actually never done that before. So I, I hope that it'll go well. But it's a really important thing. I think that will help us get a really big picture of you of something that's really, really important as Christians, and that's what the gospel leads us to do, that salvation leads to godliness. That's really the point of the whole book of Titus. And so we've said that over and over again. And even this morning, as we look at this passage and, and we look at what it means to be profitable to the world around us, as he tells us to be profitable and that it is good and excellent for the people, it means all people in the world, as we look at that this morning, we see that it's in the context of what happened three weeks ago when I preached here last time before a baby came uh, in verses three through seven. It's all in that context that the gospel so radically changes these people that that's why Paul is able to have this passage today. And so today we're going to look at this and we're going to see what it means to be profitable. And I want to see that profitable is it gets defined here as we see, and then we look at what's unprofitable. And then it wraps up as it gives a really stern warning. This is definitely a part of the passages um, when people ask, why do we preach through books of the Bible? Because then I can't avoid passages like this. And we actually have to deal with them and see what do they look like. He talks about a little bit of church discipline here at the end. So that's where we're going to go today, verses 8 through 11. Let me read those for us, and then we will go through and uh, study them just a couple at a time. It says this in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. 
for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I just pray for myself as I try to preach your word in a way that is clear and, and helps us for everyday life, that feeds your people, these people that you've entrusted to me to under-shepherd and point to you as the chief shepherd. And I'm just reminded of we went through a men's Bible study uh, this week that we are, that there is treasure in jars of clay so that we might know that the work is of God. And that is what a statement, what a verse to summarize the act of preaching. I am nothing but a jar of clay. The treasure is inside of me because it's inside of all of us. The Holy Spirit, our salvation, Jesus, united with him. So God, help me present that treasure. Help this jar of clay present that so that we would all walk away saying this is truly something that is of God and not of even Redemption Hill Church or Josh or any person, but rather it is you who speaks through me this morning. Help us, God, to be a people who are determined to be profitable to the world around us, determined to see the world be a better place because we've been changed by the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, first we want to see at, at just what it means to be profitable and where that is all coming from here in verse 8. And he says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to assist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So that saying that is trustworthy, we have to ask, what, what is he talking about? And instead, it is Jesus. So feed me a little here so I can move. Cool. And so instead, it's Jesus who saves us and does all of that work for us. That's the gospel of grace. But then it even goes on and it says he pours out his spirit on you. So the Holy Spirit is living within you. And that then through Jesus, because you've been justified by grace, the passage tells us that you've been made an heir and that you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the trustworthy statement that Paul is saying. And he's saying that statement, the gospel, to insist on these things. Or another way we could say that is to stress that. As, as Titus is coming in to help this church in Crete grow in godliness, the thing that Paul tells him to do, you know what's going to help them be godly? Insist on the gospel. Insist on the truth that they are not saved by their own works that God, rich in mercy, goodness, grace, he saved them. Holy of God, people totally saved by the Lord. And he says, and if that happens, if we insist on those things, those who have believed in God, those who believe in that gospel, will do what? They will be careful to devote themselves to good works. Another way to say that is they'll be intentional. Why? Why do we have to be intentional, careful to devote ourselves to good works? Because what the gospel says about us. We are sinners, easily deceived, prone to wander. 
you're not going to do this all on your own with, with a lack of intentionality. We need to be careful to do what is good because of what the gospel announces about us, that you are both a sinner and a saint. That in this current life, you are being made to look more and more like Jesus over time, but the work isn't done yet. So you've got to be careful to do what is good. Your natural inclination will be to do what isn't good. And even when you do good things in your natural inclination, you'll do it for your own glory and not for the glory of God. And that's what he's trying to tell them. He's saying, listen, if you insist on the gospel grace, if you insist on what they're actually saved by, these people, their natural overflowing thing that's going to happen is they are going to be intentional and careful to do what is good, which is totally counterintuitive to what we would say, right? You want to see people do what's right? Slam down the law on them. Tell them to do what's right. Tell them, man, if you don't do that, you're going to get punished. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you're a sinner that can't save yourself. And God loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you, live the life you could not live, and raise from the dead something you could never do. And if you get hold of that gospel, that gospel grace, and it captures your heart, that's what's going to motivate you to do good works. You know, as a dad, that is so hard for me because it's so counterintuitive because I think, man, you know what's going to get my kid to behave? If I put the fear of God into that little boy, right? That's not true. That's not true. Not according to what the gospel says. Not what Paul is saying here. We don't scare people into obedience. We don't slam the law into them. We don't become intimidating. But God, rich in mercy and grace and compassion, came down to us and to our level, incarnated himself, wrapped himself in flesh. That's what we're going to celebrate when we sing Christmas songs. And that's what changes us. That's what makes us more like Jesus. You are changed by grace and alone all the way through to through. Not only are you saved by it, but you're changed by it and made to look more and more like Jesus. And so he's saying, Paul, or he's saying, Tim, or Titus, you've got to insist on these things. That's what you've got to insist on. Insist on the gospel of grace and nothing else. And if we do that, the next part of our verse tells us these things, those good works, which we've seen all throughout the book of Titus, being self-controlled, pure, upright, holy, goes on and on and on throughout the book of Titus. If you insist on this, then these things, they're excellent and profitable for people. That word there, people, could also be translated as everyone. It literally means everyone. Believer, non-believer, regardless of gender, class, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. What it's saying is when Christians are captured by the gospel of grace, they are good for everybody. They are profitable and excellent to everyone. That is good news. You, do you hear that good news? Like the good news of the gospel isn't just like God saved you. The good news of the gospel is God is saving for himself a people. And then those people are so radically changed that they're literally good for the entire world. Christians are good for the entire world. But only if we're captured and we insist on the gospel. It's when we get distracted that we start messing things up. A great example of this in real life was a man named William Wilberforce. Wilberforce uh, became a, a member of British Parliament in 1780, but he didn't become a Christian until 1785. Then in his conversion, what happened with Wilberforce is it radically changed him, and he devoted his life to two things. The ending of the slave trade in the British Empire and bringing about a more polite society. Isn't that crazy? 
the ending of the slave trade, but also to bring about a more polite society. Listen to, to what Wilberforce says. As somebody who, who was not a Christian, comes converted as an adult, he says this, Let true Christians then, with becoming earnestness, strive in all things to recommend their profession or to recommend Jesus to other people and put to silence vain scoffers of ignorant objectors. Let them boldly assert the cause of Christ in an age when so many who bear the name of Christians are ashamed of him. Let them consider as devoted on them the important duty of suspending for a while the fall of their country and perhaps performing a still more extensive service to society at large. Not by busy interference in politics. What an interesting thing for a politician to say. Not by busy interference in politics. That's not going to be the thing that marks my life, says Wilberforce, even though he was a politician, in which it cannot be confessed that there is much uncertainty, but rather by the sure and radical benefit of restoring the influence of religion and of raising the standard of morality. Christians are to be people who raise the standard of morality in the lives around them because they live a moral life. They live in such a way that is profitable and excellent for everyone around them. That's what marks us. That's what puts a stamp, and that's how people look and say, that is a follower of Jesus. That person is different. And it's so amazing that that he would see that and say that. We are called to literally change the world. And that sounds really big and revolutionary. But the way that we do that as Christians, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, is this through the common practice of perfect courtesy, which we saw earlier in chapter 3. It is just the day in, day out, doing the right thing. Not being afraid to be bold and stand up for what is right and for what is good in this world. To call what is wrong, wrong. And to celebrate what is right. That's what we're called to do as Christians. But man, we make a huge mess of that when we get off course. When we take our eyes off Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and put our eyes on something else, anything else. That's what brings us to be unprofitable, which is our second point here. So we want to see what is unprofitable. Picking up in verse 9, he said, But avoid Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So these Christians were being tempted to not do what they're meant to do, right? Have their eyes focused on the gospel, being changed by the gospel, and then making the world a better place because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then what's happening instead is they're getting off They're becoming entangled in these foolish controversies, dissensions, genealogies, and even quarrels about the Old Testament law. Now, Paul is no stranger to controversy. This isn't saying, don't live a life that doesn't have controversy. I mean, we know in the book of Acts that Paul's the kind of person, he gets kicked out of towns over and over and over again. He has people literally throw rocks at him until they think he's dead, or what we might call a stoning. He's the kind of person who's beaten, imprisoned. He goes to jail like most of us here have not gone to jail. We haven't lived a life that's so controversial for Jesus that someone is locking us away in jail. But he is still saying avoid foolish controversies. Controversies that don't have any eternal meaningful significance. He's saying you just don't have time for that. Things like genealogies. We can see here 
a genealogy doesn't make any sense. We, we know from earlier in our study of the book of Titus that there were people who were trying to claim various Jewish myths. And so a lot of things that maybe Jews would do is say, man, like I'm tied in really, really directly to Abraham. And so I'm like really, really holy because my genealogy really connects us to Abraham. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You know who's a child of Abraham? Those who walk by faith. That's a child of Abraham, including these Gentiles, particularly in Crete. And so Paul is preaching that, and he's teaching that, and he's saying, like, this is totally pointless because the gospel answered this. It doesn't matter what your genealogy is. It just doesn't because those who are actual real children of Abraham are those who are children by faith. And that's what we want to see, and that's what's true. And we can see other things in that, whether that's dissensions. We can think of, like, 1 Corinthians, where people are saying, like, they're, they're just picking their favorite Christian teacher. Like, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with—he calls him Cephas in that particular chapter, but he means Peter. And then there's some who want to get really, really holy and sound kind of hoity-toity, and they're like, well, I'm with Jesus. And we see that today, right? We, 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 we do that. We pick our favorite Christian teacher and like, that's, that's me and that's who I am. And that's the camp that we're a part of. And we're super holy and we have a better grasp on the gospel than the rest of you yahoos. And so we really know what's going on. Watch us. We're the ones who do it. And it's just total foolishness. And we're missing what God is calling us to do. And we're so much fighting within ourselves that we're not doing what God is calling us to do and making the world a better place, being profitable and excellent and doing what the Lord has called us to because we've missed we need to keep our eyes on in the gospel of grace. And we put it on something else, something foolish. It doesn't make any sense. And it, listen, it's not just to our detriment. It's to the world's detriment. When we get off mission, it's bad for the world. But when we're on mission, it is excellent and profitable for everyone. We can't lose that. The gospel is so good. It's amazing news, and that's what it does for us. And he's saying, so you have to avoid that. But here's what's tricky. When do I know when to avoid a foolish controversy? And when do I know how to live out Titus 1.13, where he told me to rebuke them sharply so that they might be one and have a sound faith? That's another thing that Paul sees here. Again, Paul isn't somebody who just backed down for everything that felt like an argument. It's not saying just, oh, this is intense. I got to back out. But rather, it's discerning what is just a foolish controversy and what is something that has eternal weight and eternal value. I think something that helps us illustrate this is a really popular passage. Usually gets quoted to us, uh, about us, wrongly, but it's Matthew 7. You can go to Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 6 is what we'll look at. And it says this. It says, judge not that you not be judged. You've probably heard that when you're sharing the gospel with something and maybe you say something like Jesus is the only way uh, to, to be saved. But listen to the rest of this. It says, For the judgment that you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So it's just simply saying, it's not saying don't make a judgment or, or, or have a conversation or even disagree with somebody. It's just saying the way that you do that, you need to do that in the context of the greatest command, which is love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. So even when you're bringing about a judgment of somebody, Judge them according to the standards that you yourself would want to be judged by. That's the measure that you should do that with other people. And so it's saying that to do that. And then it tells us, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is such a good teacher. I love that. I mean, just imagine, like, if you had, like, a little tiny little splinter in your eye, and this guy, like, walked up, and he just, like, can't even see, and he's like, let me get that for you. You're like, get away from my eyes, man. 
right? Like, that's what Jesus, he's painting that picture for us. And we're saying, like, first remove the log from your own eye, but it doesn't say, and then walk away from your brother. It says, remove the log from your own eye, and then surgically, precisely, carefully, remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so we see that that's what's happening. We see Jesus is giving us a way. How do we confront people? We confront them. We, we judge them according to the judgment that we want to be judged by. I want to be judged by the word of God. I want people to do that compassionately and understandingly. But I do want it. As a Christian, I welcome in the judgment of others because it helps me be more like Jesus. That's why we have the body of Christ. But I also want to say, man, I want to be humble. I want to know that I'm a sinner too. And I want to be really precise and gentle when removing that. But then the Bible does something that it, it almost just feels like it shifts gears really hard in verse 6. And it says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So you have this, this illustration about picking out the speck in your brother's eye, but then you're told, but, you know, like, avoid foolish controversies. Don't mess with this. And that's the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of things like wisdom. Wisdom literature in the Bible almost puts these contradictory statements and it stacks them on top of each other all over the place. In the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 24, there's two Proverbs literally stacked right there. It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly unless you become like him. Then the very next uh, proverb, the very next one says, answer a fool according to his folly so that you might win him. And it's like, oh, don't these like sound totally different? Like, th- it's like the opposite thing you're telling me to do. That's the thing about things like foolish controversies, things like this. They require wisdom. And sometimes you have to act one way and sometimes another. And if I could give you a flowchart, I would, but there's just not a flowchart. It doesn't exist. See, when we're dealing with things like controversy and difficulty and disagreement with other people, there's no easy flowchart. It actually just requires some real-life wisdom. Sometimes you're going to live out Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Sometimes you're going to live out Matthew 7, 6. And you're just going to say, man, this just isn't worth it, and I can't do it. And that's hard. And that takes discernment. It takes growth. And the reality is, is we all have something coming up just around the bend where we need some wisdom, we need some help. Thanksgiving dinner. Let's just all be really honest. Thanksgiving, we think of football, food, family, and fighting about politics. That's Thanksgiving dinner and many, many households and arguments, right? You get together, you're around your relatives, you guys have different worldviews, and you've got to decide what are we going to talk about. And inevitably, something gets brought up that's controversial. And some of you, this holiday season, need to live out Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge with the judgment that you want to be judged with. Be kind and gentle, but have an honest conversation because it may be of eternal significance and it might really matter. You may have family members who don't know Jesus. And I want to say, holidays are a great time. Thankfulness is a great time. I mean, what a segue. What are you thankful for? I'm thankful for Christ and what he's done in my life. You can share that with your relatives. And you're going to have to be winsome and wise in how you do that. And some of you need to live out Matthew 7, 6. And it comes up, and you have your family member who's, like, really into Rush Limbaugh or your other family member who's really into Bill Maher, and they're, like, ready to kill each other across the table, and you just got to chill out. And you just need to just sit back, right? That's what you have to do because it requires a little bit of wisdom. What does it look like to do this? Because when we get caught up in these things and we start running down these rabbit holes of controversy that don't have eternal significance— Listen to what the Bible says. He says these things are unprofitable and they're worthless. God wants you to be excellent and profitable, not unprofitable and worthless. 
he's contrasting these two realities. People who stand for the gospel of grace that we talked about earlier and people who get caught up in some other controversy. And they get dragged away by it. So I want to give you four tips. These aren't steps. I'm just going to call them tips because I think they have to kind of come in different ways. And again, wisdom is hard. Four tips for Thanksgiving. Ready? Here you go. Or just in life in general. Number one is this. You have to humble yourself. When we're dealing with controversial topics or controversial things in our lives, it is incredibly important to humble yourself. You need to admit that there are some things that you could be wrong about. And you also need to admit, I am a sinner saved holy of God, holy by grace. And I was blind and didn't see even in the things that you know you're right about, like Jesus Christ being Lord. You, you're right about that. I'll tell, you're right about that. But even in that declaration, you need to do that humbly because at one point in your life, you were not convinced of that. And somebody, by God's grace, shared the gospel with you. And I'm going to guess they probably did it in a pretty winsome kind of way. And the God of the universe epiphanied in your life. He showed up and he appeared. And in his mercy and his grace, he saved you. You want to do that. You need to humble yourself. Number two is you need to ask yourself this question. How important is this really? When the controversial topic comes out, we just got to ask, like, does it really matter that much? How important is this really? Does it have eternal significance? And the answer is no. A lot of times, like, just take a step back. That's a good time to go get more dessert, right? Like, just, just do something else. It's just, not, it's just not, a, it's not the most important thing. The third thing is you want to discern their willingness to listen. You can have the greatest, most eloquent argument in the world for the gospel and the greatest apologetic, but if you don't have an ear to hear, you're just casting pearls before pigs. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to discern. Do they have a willingness to listen? And the final thing I want to give you a tip is this. This is a huge thing, I think, in my life in particular that I struggle with. We must trust God in his grace to bring change. When I get angry in a conversation, I get overly passionate and overly zealous, what's really happening is somewhere in there, I have failed to trust the Lord and his ability to change that person. And I've thought, it's up to me. I've got to do it. I've got to change them. And so I go at them hard because I'm going to win. And, and, and that's just a, it's a signal in your heart that you're distrusting God's sovereignty and ability to change hearts. God has got this. You are, it is not your responsibility to change people. It's your responsibility to be a faithful witness. And you just let the Lord do his thing. And I think that's what we have to do. And so those are my four tips that I want to give you as you walk into the next couple of weeks and the holiday season and what that looks like. Because I know that's in my life that often happens. And we just got to make some decisions. And then how do we have the, and then even within our church, as we decide to have all these little, small, tiny, tiny conversations, these little confrontations here and there, which will happen in the life of every church. We're young, so we haven't had very many, but they are coming. We are knowing that in that moment, we're actually practicing the very initial steps of what we call church discipline. And this is what I want to wrap up today. Is this, there is a stern warning given for those who do not adhere to this. And we want to see those last two verses. It says, ask for a person who stirs up division for the person who just can't avoid the foolishness. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. This, this passage, when he's saying having nothing more to do with him, he's talking about the, the church discipline practice of what we might call excommunication. In our church, that would be if someone was a member, we would say, we don't think you, you represent Christ and that you're living in the way of doing that. And so we would say that they're no longer a member of the church. They're still welcome, obviously, to attend the church. But we would recognize and say, we, we don't think you're, you're living like a believer, and so they would 
be removed from the membership roles. That's how we would often do that kind of thing. And, and should this be necessary, I think one of the things we have to say is we're going to live out the scriptures. We are going to do this. But, but I want you to see the process that's happening. It's not as simple as like one, two, three strikes, you're out. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Like, I, get, I warned you once, I warned you twice. Don't make me count to three. But I think we see a really good picture. Is Paul is actually just, just referencing a teaching of Jesus uh, in Matthew 18, verse 15. And Jesus says this, is, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Once. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Twice. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. And he refuses to listen even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if any, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. A lot of times we take that verse out of context. We try to say, like, there's three of us together. God's going to do this amazing thing. God is always here. He's omnipresent. What God is saying is he is affirming that where there are two or three Christians, local churches like we have here, where they're coming together, there's wisdom, there's, there's a process, there's accountability. Saying, man, if you find yourself in the, in the woes of church discipline, you should be very concerned about your soul. Because there is a group of believers who are lovingly saying to you, I don't think you're there, man. I don't think you, you're living the way that Christ would have you to live. And I'm worried. I'm worried that you're one of these tares that Jesus is talking about in his other parables that's growing up amongst the, the wheat. And for your good and because I love you, I'm trying to tell you, I'm worried about you. We as a church, we're worried about you. We're praying for you. We're saying that you're not a member anymore because you're just not living the way a Christian would live. It's like every time we go, you've, you've got this thing. It's, such, it's so idolatrous in your life. You're just picking a fight in every community group and it's ruining every small group we have we can't do that you can't just keep ruining this for the whole body we've got we've got to we've got to come alongside these people and and lovingly say listen brother listen sister and come with them one-on-one come with them with leaders in the church slow arduous process always 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 the goal to be restoration always the goal to be repentance even after we're doing that because we are turning them over to the world and, and from the spiritual protection of the church. And we're praying that that would bring them back to Jesus, bring them back to Christ in power and his glory. That is such a hard thing to do. This is not popular in many, many churches. We don't talk about this. We don't do this. Again, if we weren't preaching through the whole book of Titus, in my own flesh, I might just choose to skip over this verse. This is hard. And I want to tell you just a tale of two companies that I worked for. One had a terrible, toxic, awful company culture. The other had a wonderful culture. Want to guess which company let people go? It's actually the one with the wonderful culture. See, the first company I worked at, even though it was cult- uh, totally toxic and it was just it was rough, the only time people get fired is they literally stole stuff from the company or did drugs on site. That's the only time I knew of anybody getting fired. I worked there for almost five years. No one lost their job because of performance or lack of integrity or saying awful things to their employees, which I watch happen a lot. And then at my other company, in my first couple weeks there, as a very small company, someone lost their position. And it was 
just a not good culture fit and a not good fit for the company. And they had to, to let this person go. And I was a brand new dad. I'd been at this company for three weeks. I had never done sales before and I was terrified. So they came and they had these meetings with us, kind of let us know what was going on. Like anybody concerned? And I'm like, I'm concerned. Did this person know they were getting fired? Like when, what was this process look like? And the, the boss of that company, he, he really mentored me a lot through my professional career. Even later, he uh, took me on a walk, just the two of us, because he knew that I was a little worried because I had this baby on the way. And I didn't know what to do. And we went on this walk together. And I'll never forget one of the things he, that he said as we were working through. And I was just trying to understand what happened. I was this new person this company. He says, Josh, we can't be afraid to do the hard thing with one person because I have a responsibility to the rest of the company. I have a responsibility to all of you. And while companies are a lot different than churches and no one's getting fired from church because of their performance uh, by any means, and there's a lot of ways this analogy does not line up, I think maybe in just that one statement we can see there's a good thing there. Pastors and church leaders have to be willing to do the hard thing with one person because they have a responsibility and an obligation to the rest of the sheep. And that's a hard thing. And I want to also say it is for the good of that person to Because when we look at this passage, I mean, look at these people, we have to see that that they are knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Paul's actually already talked about them in in, in Titus 1. Sorry, I skipped a slide there. Mark, go back if you can. Uh, Titus 1, verse 12, it says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. See, these are the kinds of people that, that he's talking about. He's not talking about somebody who just gets in like one argument at one small group one time. Don't think we're going to like drop the hammer down and excommunicate you from the church. These are people who are just causing dissension over and over again. And and they're just tearing this little church in Crete apart by the seams. And he's he's coming in and he's saying, these people, they're warped, they're sinful, and they're self-condemned. In every instance of church discipline that I've had to walk through at at my previous sending church, you know what usually happens by the end of it? The people themselves say, you're right. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe this. Or I wasn't. And they repent. Those, the, those are the experiences that I have. The, the, it's right there. He is self-condemned. A lot of times we start breaking it down. We say, this is the gospel. Do you really believe that? But we find in these situations, over time, those people say, you know what? I didn't. I didn't believe that. I thought I did, but I didn't. Neither repent and they're welcomed back into the fellowship or they leave. And that's what often happens. So what are we to do as a really young church who isn't taking anybody through church discipline, uh, who, who isn't, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, I think our honeymoon stage is still kind of going as a church. We're just haven't experienced a lot of church controversy. What do we do with a passage like this? And what I want to say is this. Beware of the smaller sins that lead to this kind of divisiveness. This kind of thing doesn't just happen out of nowhere. It usually starts with some gossip here or there, saying things, even if they're true, but saying things that you shouldn't be saying about somebody else behind their back. Slander, saying things that are just completely false about something else. Grumbling, complaining, oh, can you believe that Josh did this again? Right, those kind of things. The last thing that I just made up and call, I would call it catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is really, really uh, easy to come by in church plant life, right? The pipe and drape doesn't get set up, and we're like, oh, no, we're not going to have worship today. We're going to have worship today. Most problems, most problems are actually not as big as we make them out to be. 
Most problems require just a steady hand and a deep breath, and we can solve them. But we want to be really careful that we don't look at the problems and just start thinking of all the other things that could go wrong, and the sky is constantly falling. That's going to kill us. That's what we want to be aware of, because that's what leads to getting caught up in foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and the like, even quarrels about the Bible. Well, I want to wrap up today's sermon uh, by saying this. Uh, well, let's read from the a passage of Scripture for Hebrews 3.13. It says this, So, but extort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what do you do as a young church plant in this situation? Extort one another day by day, so that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These kind of things, these kinds of situations are usually a slow fade. It's very rare that they just happen out of nowhere. That's just not how life typically works. If we can catch it early and exhort one another to doing what is good and what is right, we will be spared a tremendous amount of heartache in the life of our church. Because I can't be the only one who's doing that. The the author of Hebrews is writing to church members, not to pastors when he says that, that we are all exhorting one another to do what's right day by day so we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I think that's what this passage has for us today as we look at what that looks like. We want to be a people who are profitable people because our eyes are set on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, and we're not running to or fro in other ways. Because here is the reality of the gospel. It's so life-changing and, and, and so radical that I actually want to suggest this. You can't be profitable without it. Not in the kind of way this passage is talking about. You cannot be excellent and profitable to the world without the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to say even more. If we lose sight of the gospel, and even for those who are, you see this in the non-believing world, they're actually doomed to get caught up in foolish controversies. We have seen that play out before us in the last year and a half or so, two years. I mean, totally foolish controversies that people are getting caught up in, swept up in, totally passionate about. It consumes their life and everything within it. Why? We've got to ask the question, why is that? Because you're made to worship something. You're made to pay homage to something. And when we worship something, when we value something, when we love something, we fight for it, we stand for it, and we'll argue about it. And when Jesus isn't that thing that we are worshiping, something else creeps to the top of the throne of our heart and it distorts our view on the rest of the world and you will doom yourself to becoming caught up in foolish controversies. The gospel saves you from sin. It promises you eternal life. But you know what's awesome? It is saving you today from yourself. It saves you from your own idolatrous heart, picking something, making that kind of your pet thing, and then that becomes something that just rules your world and life. And inevitably, it will lead you to foolish controversies. It will. We cannot be excellent and profitable for the world that God, the way that God intended if we disregard God. When he sits on the throne of our hearts, he actually sets the world in order for us so we might see it rightly and make wise decisions and do the things that bring him honor and glory, and that is actually to the benefit of everybody. But when we deny him, when we remove him from his rightful place as Lord of our hearts and our lives, we're doomed. We're doomed, not just for hell and eternity, but like today, 
your life is going to be worse, worse now, today, if you don't know Jesus. Because you will be led to and fro to every which way, like a wave tossed in the sea. Because you won't know what that anchor is that's going to hold you down. So if you don't know Jesus today, if you don't know him and love him, I want to say, look to Christ. Again, we'll be in the back. You can come and talk to us more what that might look like and help you work through those things that you would run to Jesus. Because as we run to Jesus in those moments, what I'm saying is you can have relief even starting now that he will set your affections and orders rightly in the right way that he would desires for you. See, eternal life is in the future. It is heaven, but it's also now. Jesus makes life better now, in the here and now. And quite frankly, the Bible's a lot more about the here and now than it is about the distant future. Jesus isn't fire insurance. He's somebody to know and love now, today. And if you're getting caught up in those controversies and you're given over to that anger and you see that you can have freedom by putting your faith in Christ and Jesus, uh, faith in Jesus. And I think that's one of the amazing things about the gospel. And for those of us who do know Jesus, you're walking him, you love him, you are that reality that I talked about earlier. You're both sinner and saint. And if we're all honest, if I'm honest, there are things that creep their way onto the throne of my heart that distract me and pull me away. Internet blogs, I just start reading and I can't stop reading. It's like a train wreck or a dumpster fire. I just can't take my eyes off of it for some reason, right? And, and it's just, why? Like, why are we doing that? You, like, because you have an enemy. He doesn't want you to be profitable. He doesn't want you to be excellent for this world. So keep clicking on Reddit. Keep watching YouTube videos. Keep scrolling through your social media feed. Keep getting caught up in all the controversy because that's exactly where the enemy wants you. Exactly where he wants you. Because all that time you're wasting looking at that screen, you are not being profitable to this world. We've got to, we've got to break free of that. And that's what I'm going to call us to do as Christians. Guys, we have those little cards at the back. We're trying to help you invite people to a launch service. This is something, if you've, if you've had a friend who's maybe visited once and they haven't, haven't been back, what an opportunity. Invite that person. We've got a little blank space there for you to write a note to somebody. And I'm not saying this because we want to see Redemption Hill Church be built up. I, it's really not it. We're saying this because I believe that we sing the gospel here, we pray the gospel here, we preach the gospel here, and we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings freedom and joy, and and it's amazing news. We believe that Jesus is, in fact, wonderful, and we want him to be known by everybody. You have an opportunity by being here to do something that is excellent and profitable for this community by being a part of a local church that has its eyes fixed on Jesus that's going to help you do that as well and live out the implications of this beautiful good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, whether that's inviting people, we have them on the back table here. If you don't have them, go ahead and grab as many as you want. Pass them out to all your friends. Um, And we are so thankful for all that God continues to do. If God is going to grow this church, I firmly believe it's going to be through you. It's going to be through your invitations and your ministry. So with that, let me pray us out.